We're going to begin reading in chapter 44, the message to the Jews in Egypt. Tonight, we're going to probably only make it to the 19th verse. So we're going to start there or stop there. The word of the Lord or the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdal, at Taphanus, at Noph, and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are desolation and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know. They nor you nor your fathers. However, I've sent you. All my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as it is in this day. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. Why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain? In that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness? And the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, they have not been humbled to this day, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe. And for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there. And they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword and by famine. And they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive. Lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods. And with all the women who stood by a great multitude and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah saying, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth. To burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food. We were well off and we saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked Everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. The women also said. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her. 
Did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permissions? It was George Santayana, the famous philosopher, who said those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. What do you think? Have they learned from the past? Do we learn from history and personal experience? Doesn't it seem that we have come once again full circle? How many people have to die before it awakens the conscience of a community? How many people have to suffer? Do people learn from the past? Does divine, let me just ask you this question. Does divine discipline always produce repentance? That's the right answer. No. Divine discipline doesn't always seem to produce repentance. During the Reformation, Martin Luther said concerning repentance, to do so no more is the truest repentance. In other words, the ver- what, there's, there's different kinds of repentance. There's genuine repentance and there's not so genuine repentance. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop in Liverpool, said, Let us be wed of a repentance without evidence. There's a sort of a repentance that says, We're going in a different direction. We're going to do things differently. My life is going to be different. My heart's going to be different. The family's going to be different. Circumstances are going to be different. Jeremiah continues to minister to the survivors of the terrible catastrophe, the collapse of Jerusalem. Jeremiah warned the survivors not to go to Egypt in chapter 43. Remember, Jerusalem has fallen. The Babylonians have come. The the nation has collapsed. There's a remnant that is left in Judea. They gather with Jeremiah and they say, what should we do? And Jeremiah seeks the Lord and and Jeremiah says, look, I, I need you to stay right here. Because God's going to build a nation because he has plans and purposes and unfinished business with the nation. But in spite of all of that, they go back. The survivors flee to Egypt. And I need you to know why. They fled back to Egypt because they didn't feel safe. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't feel safe? Where because of a death or because of an economic catastrophe or because of some war or some issue, all of a sudden you didn't feel safe. And there was this creeping, constant sense that you had to get out of this circumstances and the survivors flee to Egypt because they don't think they're safe. But there is no Pharaoh in the world that can protect them from a God who's committed to pursuing them in their arrogance and disobedience, in their rebellion and rejection of God. They think that they're going to go there and that they're going to be safe from the plan of God, from the purposes of God. And in their instance, the punishment of God. Because God purposed in his heart that he was going to punish Jerusalem and Judea for their persistent, willful, sinful rebellion and idolatry. So in spite of the stern warning, they make their way back to Egypt. God tells Jeremiah to bury some large rocks at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace. It's a kind of a virtual sermon. And the virtual sermon was to signify that one day Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would come to the very place in Egypt. He would occupy it. He would place his throne on the very spot where Jeremiah buried those stones. And now Jeremiah is going to deliver a couple of sermons. In the first sermon that we just read, Jeremiah's theme, you guessed it, warning, rebuke, reminder. 
Jeremiah told the people how God punished Judah for sin in verses 1 through 6. Jeremiah warned them that God would punish them for worshiping Egypt's false gods in verses 7 through 14. So here's his sort of neat outline. Jeremiah's message is twofold. Jeremiah reminds them of what they've seen in verses 2 and 3, the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, and what they heard, the messages of the prophets that God sent to them to rebuke them time after time in verses 4 through 6. And then after hearing the sermon, the people's response, we're not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. We're not going to listen to your messages from the Lord in verses 15 through 16. We're going to continue to burn incense to the queen of heaven. We're going to continue to sacrifice to the queen of heaven in verses 17 through 19. And by the way, in the second sermon, which we'll see later, Jeremiah reminds them, remain in Egypt and die, verses 20 through 27. Return to Judah and live, verses 28 through 30. Only a handful. Only the most precious few will respond to his pleas. Avoid death, return to Judah, and live. John Guest reflects on the ministry of Jeremiah and his commitment to God's word, and he writes, quote, The years of long obedience equipped him well for this. He could lift his head up high and sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land. Would that they could have been the words of comfort issued to a people who had learned from their mistakes. Instead, they were words of warning issued to a people determined to repeat their mistakes. Do I need to ask you? Are you a person who learns from his or her mistakes? Or are you a person who in the most frustrating way you find yourself making the same mistake over and over and over again? This is a picture of apostasy and forsaking the Lord in verses 1 through 14. And then it's also a picture of when people fail to repent And hard hearts in verses 15 through 19. When we come to the end of the chapter, we'll see a final condemnation. Which becomes a picture. An unpleasant picture. Of a final judgment. Look again at the picture of apostasy and forsaking the Lord in verse 1. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt. Who dwell at Migdol, at Tathanus, at Noph. And in the country of Pathros. In the northern part of Egypt and the southern part of Egypt. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography. But imagine in your mind a line at the top. Almost like a square. At the north is the mouth of the Mediterranean. The Nile River runs through Egypt. And it goes south, if you will, into the belly of Africa. Jewish colonies sprang up at Migdol, Taphanus, and Noph. Noph has another name that you might be familiar with. Memphis. But not Memphis, Tennessee, the home of the king. Different king. And Pathros. Migdol means tower. And it was a place near the Red Sea. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, in Numbers chapter 33, Migdol was the place where the Hebrews encamped before their departure from Egypt. Now, many of you know the story of the enslavement of the children of Israel. You you know, you watch the Ten Commandments or whatever every year when it comes on TV. And you know the story of how Jacob and his family went into Egypt, how Joseph delivered all of the people, how... um, The children of Israel grew and increased in population. They went from a family to a nation, and for 400 years they were there. And during the last 300 of those, they were enslaved by Pharaoh. And you remember God raised up Moses to deliver them from their slavery. And in the process of deliverance, they camped at this place, Migdol, near the Red Sea. Now, some Bible teachers have suggested that this is 
the northern border of Egypt. But, but again, why is this interesting or why is this important for you and for me? Because Egypt in the Bible becomes a type and a picture of the world and the slavery that we left behind. You see, the Bible teaches that we were all slaves of sin. We were mastered by our passions and by our lusts. We were enslaved in this old world. And Jesus comes and he delivers us from our slavery. And so Migdol also becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of the last place that you were before you were saved. Now imagine, I'm sure it's not true of any of you, because you've never left the life of grace and mercy and and God's peace and forgiveness and decided, well, I'm just going to live like I'm a person in the world. But maybe some of you have. And some of you know what it's like to be in that place of friendship and fellowship and peace and forgiveness. And for whatever reason, you find yourself back on the border of the world that you left. Pathros is the Southland. It's a general term for the upper Egypt, the southern part of the land, the depths of Egypt. And then in verse two, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the calamity That I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them. The people had survived the horrors of war, the occupation and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. These were a group of people who understood what it was to be a vital, vibrant, living city. And now it's devastated. If we were to put it in microcosm, it would be like New York after the Twin Towers fail and you have this pile of of rubbish or or when there's been a scene of calamity and wickedness and terror and all kinds of problems. And, And so he's drawing their attention to the fact you saw what happened to Jerusalem. You saw the siege engines. You saw the children crying. You saw saw the wall collapse. You saw people starving. You saw all of this stuff that happened. But they failed to learn the lessons of history and personal experience. They saw that rebellion and disobedience had had brought judgment time after time after time. And Jeremiah is wondering whether the hardship and the trauma and the discipline have gone to waste. Never let a good trial go to waste. Never let pain and suffering go to waste. What do I mean by that? If you find yourself in a difficult position, if you find your self in a a position of brokenness and humility and dependence upon the Lord. Don't let it go to waste. Use it as an opportunity to cry out to him, love him, depend on him. Haven't we learned that disobedience to God only ends badly and the people had not learned anything? Because I want you to think about this. They've already slipped into the old familiar patterns of false worship, burning incense to alien gods. And why does that become again important to us? Because all you have to do is just ignore your Bible for a day and then another day. Ignore prayer for a day or another day. Just for, you know, one week you skipped church and then another week you skipped church and then you skipped friendship and fellowship and you you skip the normal routines of what it means to know and love and be with the people who love the Lord and pretty soon you find yourself slipping into this pattern of existence that looks very much like an unbeliever's life. And it says in verse three, because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, they nor you nor your fathers. Now, look what it says again in verse three, because of their wickedness which they have committed to provoke me to anger. In other words, if you're ever wondering, if you're ever wondering how God feels about rebellion and sin and wickedness, he doesn't like it. And and let me just put it to you a little bit differently. Did God hate idolatry in Jerusalem? He despised it, didn't he? 
If he hated idolatry in Jerusalem, do you think all of a sudden now he's going to love it in Egypt? What's the right answer? He hated it in Jerusalem. He hates it in Egypt. God hates false worship and idolatry in the church and in the world. What was at the root of their judgment? The people lived wicked lives and they worshiped false gods. And you would think, you know, living a wicked life and worshiping false gods, does that really invite the judgment of God? I was on a national radio program and I made the comment that wicked is a word that has fallen out of favor in our culture. When things happen, bad things happen, sometimes we're reluctant to use words like wicked, evil, wrong, disgusting. When you use a word like wicked, it seems harsh and judgmental. Well, you know, that seems like a kind of an emotionally and morally charged word, that wicked. Wicked implies, well, wicked. And I don't mean it like in the New England sense, like it's very, very, you know, oh, it's wicked cold here today. I don't mean it as a sort of an an adjective or a modifier. I mean something that is morally bankrupt. But in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22, the Bible says there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, it says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. In other words, there's this reoccurring theme in the Bible that somehow, some way, we've got to turn from the things that are dishonoring and displeasing to God. And then in verse 4, it says, however... However, I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. Now, I think all of you understand what, what this passage means. However, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets. Like Hosea. Like Isaiah. Like Jeremiah. Like Ezekiel. Like Daniel. You can do a laundry list of the prophets. Amos. Rising early with a reoccurring message, reminding the people, stop with the idolatry already. Stop with the wickedness already. Stop with dishonoring and disobeying God already. And then he says, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. The people ignored and then rejected the prophets and their persistent warnings. And then in verse 4, when people are asking the question, well, how does God really feel about my sin? Well, you know, he's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. He realizes that you're just a human being, that you have a body that's corruptible and that you're a human being with flesh and blood. But the Lord says, oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. There's a couple of words in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew Old Testament. Abomination, abominable, wicked. These are charged words that are supposed to express in the greatest terms possible God's feelings about sin. Verse 5, but they did not listen or incline their ear, turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to other gods. And you may not even understand what burning incense to other gods means. But in the ancient world, what they would do is they would take fragrant spices and they would mix them together and they would burn it. And when it caught on fire, it's just like for those of you who are old enough to remember the 60s, incense burning. And in that smell of incense, that fragrant uh, aroma that would make its way up, the, the, the fragrant aroma, like, like prayer itself, these invisible aromas would make their way up into the atmosphere. And so the burning of incense became a type, a picture, a way of 
symbolically praying to whatever deity that you were were pleading to. And so the children of Israel would burn incense to these foreign gods. And but here's part of the point. It's the prayer and the affection and the dependence that they have on these foreign gods. And so he says in verse five, but they didn't listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness to burn no incense to, to no other gods. The people refused to listen, refused to repent, continued with their prayers and oblations to the foreign gods. And so the Lord lists, lists three reasons why God's judgment fell in Judah and Jerusalem and must of necessity also fall in Egypt. Number one, the people had provoked God's anger by living wicked lives and worshiping false gods. Number two, the people rejected the prophets and their messages of God, including the message... Stop, cease, desist. And number three, the people refused to listen to God, to repent and turn from their wickedness. That's verse three, verse four, verse five. And so in verse six, it says, so my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as it is to this day. Now. Time out for just a second. God is communicating to the remnant, the refugees in Egypt, that he had punished Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. And it was his way of saying, do you understand what I did? And it's also the Lord's way of saying, if God was angry in the past, he continues to be angry with sin. And so here's the idea. The people ignored justice and that provoked God's anger. Remember, God told him to remain in the land. The people fled. Now, remember why the people fled. We're afraid. We're scared. We need safety. But God's position is is you're running for all the wrong reasons. Because there's no place that's more safe in the will of God. There's no place more safe in the arms of God. There's no place more safe than in humility and dependence to trust the Lord. So the Lord begs them. The Lord begs them that the people who fled not only disobeyed his command, but they're running from justice. He begs them to heed the lesson of history. He pleads with them. Please don't make the same mistakes over and over again. That rebellion and disobedience is an invitation to judgment. That idolatry brings a reproach and a curse. And in verse 7 it says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil? Look what it says. Not just against him, but against yourselves. To cut off from you man and woman and child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain. Now, it would be a good idea to avoid rebellion and disobedience simply because God says don't do it and simply because it offends him. But now the Lord approaches another line of reasoning. That expression in verse 7, this great evil against yourselves, literally in the Hebrew language, it reads against your own souls. In other words, it's the Lord's way of saying, what kind of strange insanity are you embracing that you would engage in this kind of self-destructive behavior? I'm certain I'm not talking about any of you. But have you ever met someone who kept doing stuff in a repetitive fashion, even though they knew that the drinking and the drugging was going to kill them. They knew that the sexually immoral relationship ran the risk of, of an unwanted pregnancy or a sexually transmitted disease. They knew that this kind of lifestyle, that this kind of continual wicked rebellion and disobedience was going to, in the end, if it didn't, 
um, blow your mind or cause your liver to gel, that there was just something bad that was going to happen. And people would plead and they would beg and they would say, don't you understand that if you continue to go down that road, that this is going to be a, a painful way of going. This is going to be a problem that you're not just hurting God. You're not just hurting your family. You're hurting yourself. And so in verse eight, it says in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands. In other words, the things that you're actually doing, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have gone to dwell. Why? Why? Because they think that in this particular place with this particular Pharaoh and these particular social, political and cultural circumstances that they don't have to worry about being at war, being in difficult circumstances. He says, where you have gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. In, in other words, this is God's way of saying, don't you understand that by refusing to trust me, refusing to depend upon me, refusing to place your confidence, your present and your future in my hands, that, that, that everyone else in the world is going to think, what were you thinking by not trusting the Lord? I couldn't help but think about the shooting this last week, the suspect who was a student and a Ph.D. student, and nobody knew who this person was. Nobody knew anything about this particular person. And now can you imagine that you have this reputation because everybody in the world knows what a what a disgusting pig you are, that you would go into a theater and kill innocent people, including a child wounding more with a woman who's pregnant, who just gave birth to a baby and a bullet goes into her husband's eye. She's giving birth in a hospital and her husband's fighting for his life. And it's not just people in Colorado, but everywhere in the United States and everywhere in the world, they realize that there's something really, really wrong with you. And you might think, well, well, thank God that not everybody knows I'm a jerk. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage for the people of the children of Israel is that there are blessings and promises and 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 provisions that are made for people who will trust the Lord. And so here, here is God once again pleading with them over and over and over again. You can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. And he says that you may cut yourself off. That expression that you may cut yourself off in the Hebrew language is much more strong. It's almost impossible to translate. It's difficult to translate. It has this idea as if it were your aim to destroy yourself. One Bible Bible writer says, translates it, thus ensuring your own destruction. In other words, when you go down a particular path at a particular time that you know is going to result in great disappointment, ensuring the fact that something bad is going to happen, why would you do it? And he says in verse 9, have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? In verse 9, count it. Count with me. Have you forgotten wickedness? Number one, the wickedness of your fathers. Number two, the wickedness of kings. Number three, the wickedness of their wives. Number four, your own wickedness. Number five, the wickedness of your wives. When you think wickedness appears five times in a single verse, what word kind of draws your attention? Mm, I know what you're thinking. Wickedness? That's exactly right. The history of the kings of Judah and their wives read like a who's who Of wickedness. But for some reason, there was a kind of willful amnesia. There was a selective forsaking of the knowledge that sin invites judgment. It was as if, well, I know that the idolatry and the wickedness in the land was bad, but now we're in a new place and it doesn't seem as bad. 
But then the Lord says in verse 10, they have not been humbled to this day. That means the day that they are there in Egypt, nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. Now, look what verse 10 brings up. Remorse, humility, fear, obedience. And here's what the Lord is basically saying. You would think that judgment is going to bring to people's hearts a sense that there's something wrong, that we need to humble ourselves, that we need to fear God and obey God. Jonathan Edwards wrote, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. So when he says they have not been humbled, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. The Bible says humble yourself. In the sight of God, here's the biblical solution to the problem of pride and to the problem of unrepentance and to the problem of a hardened heart. When sin has seared your conscience, when sin like a scale, like a scab that is formed over the surface of your soul, that it needs to be penetrated so that there will be healing. The, the answer becomes humility. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, wrote by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens it was the ancient way of saying look every moment every moment every minute every minute that you delay repentance sin gets stronger and stronger in your life and your heart gets harder and harder and harder and so when you resist the message of repentance where you know you we've heard it over and over in the book of jeremiah turn from your sin yeah we we got that last week Turn from your sin, chapter 33. Turn from your sin, chapter 34. Turn to your, from your sin, chapter 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. I know what you're thinking. Okay, we think we've got this one down. But then all of a sudden something happens during the week. And your heart gets a little bit hard. The Puritan preacher said, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezeth, the harder it is to be broken. In Deuteronomy 5.29 and Ecclesiastes 12.13, the Bible says, fear the Lord. Obey his commands. William Gurnall said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures the other. And I love that statement. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. And there's a reason why you see this epidemic, a pandemic. There's a spiritual pandemic in the church, in the community. In the world, look around you. Do people fear God? And I don't mean like I'm afraid of God. I mean it's the reverential awe that comes of when knowing that there is a God, that He is there, that this God cares, that this God is aware of our circumstances, that God knows who we are and what we are doing. And it says in verse 11, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for the cutting off of all Judah. That, that expression, it's an idiomatic expression when he says, behold, I will set my face against you. It's the Hebrew way of saying, I am determined that you're going to have to accept the consequences of what you've done. The Lord warns them in the strongest possible terms. And it is the Lord. Look what it says again in verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. The reason why this is important, this isn't Jeremiah's warning. This isn't just the Bible teacher's warning. This is God's warning. And when he uses the term the Lord of hosts. It's an expression that means that God has the power and the vast resources to execute judgment if they fail to heed the warning 
well, maybe it'll, it'll turn out all right. Maybe things will turn around. God has unlimited resources. It says in verse 12, and I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt. Remember, it's, it's the expression of determined. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Ju- Egypt to dwell there. Why? Because they think they're going to be safe there and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine. In other words, they go to Egypt because they think they're going to be safe. But is there any place safe outside of the will of God? Is there any place safe outside of the plan of God? Is there any place safe outside of the purposes of God? For the Christian, is there any place safe outside of the cross of Calvary in the heart of Jesus? Is there any place safe other than in the central place of perfect submission and humility to God through Jesus? If the people persisted in their sin, they would die by war. They would die by pestilence. They would die by famine. And in verse 13, it says, for I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive, lest they return to the land of Egypt to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. And see, here's part of the challenge. The challenge is for the people who go back into the world. God isn't going to use them in order to accomplish the plans and purposes that he has for the future. For all of the people who will die in Egypt, they will not be used by God in order to fulfill the plan and the purpose of God. And so God is going to reach into Babylon or Daniel and the other children of Israel who have been captured. He's going to reach into their captivity and he's going to preserve them and protect them and remind them and use them and mature them and bring them back. What is the fruit of apostasy? What happens to those who forsake him? What happens to the people who disobey his commandments? The remnant thought that they could continue to disobey God. They thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ignore God. We're going to disobey God. We're going to ignore his commandments. And guess what? God's going to still accept us and forgive us because that's the kind of cool God that he is. But they were wrong. They're wrong. Is God a forgiving God? Yes. For people who turn from their sin. And who repent of their sin and who embrace the Lord and walk with the Lord and commit themselves to the Lord. The people were adding sin on this growing pile of sin. And on this growing pile of sin, it was as if they're creating this mountain of rebellion and sin. And they go right to the top of this mountain of sin and rebellion and they plant a flag. And on the flag is written the word presumption. Do you know what the word presumption means? It's assuming that we can continue to sin without consequence and without punishment and without judgment. That's the very definition of presumption. The very definition of presumption is that we can continue to sin without consequence, without punishment, without judgment. And we're living in a world. We're living in a world. We're living in a world that says we can live without Jesus and we can live without the Bible and we can live without the promises of God and we can live without the gospel message and we can live without that. But when you, once you make the decision that you're going to live without God and you're going to live without the Bible and you're going to live without the, the promises that are in the Bible, guess what? All you're left with is your sin and your rebellion and your disobedience. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, from that time, you'll remember that many of the disciples went back and they, the Bible says they walked with him no more. 
Jesus offended them in John chapter 6. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And people are thought, this Jesus talking about cannibalism and all of this creepy zombie-like words that he's using, it doesn't make sense. It just uh, it doesn't resonate with me. It, I, I, I'm not getting it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before you, that you by them might war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith and have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I delivered over to Satan, so that they would learn not to blaspheme. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I committed to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before you, that there is a warfare involved, that you're going to have to hold on to the faith. And that includes the conscience, but some have put away the faith. Well, you know, the Bible really doesn't matter, and it doesn't really matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere in those beliefs and you're a, basically a good person. But Paul said, no, I delivered them over to Satan. You know, there's a very creepy feeling that I get because I see people and I see an image stamped over them, special delivery. Where are you going? Where are you being sent? Special delivery. Because for those people who continue to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, quite apart from repentance, quite apart from submission, quite apart, a part of embracing presumption are, are, are playing a dangerous game. And so that's what he's talking about when people fail to repent in verse 15. Then all of the people who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods. This is the prayers with all the women who stood by a great multitude. And this gives us an, a, a kind of a, of a, a clue when you go back to verse 44 and you see that it says the word that came to Jeremiah in the land of Egypt who dwell at Migdol at Tapanus at Nop or at Memphis and the country of the Pathros. All of a sudden this great multitude. It's almost like a conglomeration of all of the Jews who find themselves in Egypt, they all of a sudden form this great assembly and they come together, but the text doesn't tell us why. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a crowd of people, whether it's at Invesco Field or, or the Rocky Stadium or whatever, but you're in a group of people and there's 10,000 people or 20,000 people or 30,000 people. We're not told why all of these people had gathered. And we are not told under what circumstances that they gathered. But apparently, Jeremiah is delivering this sermon to them. He's delivering this message to them. They come together and it says that all the men, in other words, these are the guys who knew that their wives were engaged in this kind of idolatry. It says in verse 16, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The remnant of the refugees stubbornly refused to repent. They said, we don't really like what you're saying and we don't want to hear what you're saying. They were stiff necked. They were hard hearted against God. No matter how much God appealed to them, no matter how many supernatural warnings were delivered, no matter how merciful he was, no matter how long suffering, no matter how much patience, no matter how many blessings, no matter how much preservation and difficulty, no matter how much protection. It, it, see, then, and this becomes part of the point. Well, God's still speaking to us. He's still, he's still giving the, the prophets. There's still patience. There's still patience. They're still blessing. They rejected Jeremiah. They rejected his message and they refused to listen to him. The people were determined to love what God hates. And they were determined to hate what God loves. 
And when you're dealing with a group of people who are determined to love what God hates and to hate what God loves, when you're when you're dealing with a group of people who would rather die than change. It can be pretty frustrating. It can be pretty intimidating. Because you have to wonder. And here's Jeremiah wondering. Now remember this is. This is the next of the last sermon. The last sermon is coming up. He started all of this 40 years earlier. He warned them about the Babylonians. Then the Babylonians came. He warned about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then the destruction of Jerusalem came. He warned them about not going back to Egypt. And then they did. He warns them, even in this difficult circumstance. And I got to tell you something, I really believe this. I believe that there are people who hear warning after warning, appeal after appeal, pleading after pleading. And in verse 17, it says, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food. We were well off and saw no trouble. Do you understand what's happening? The delusion is so great. The delusion is so complete. The delusion is so thorough that they actually associated their misery to their serving God. And that life was so much better when they were in rebellion, when, when, they, were, when they were disobeying God and they were... They, they were involved in the false worship. Men and women condoned the false worship, engaged in the false worship, celebrated the false worship. And think of the insolence of what's going on right at this very moment. They're they're basically saying to Jeremiah, we're not going to give up our false gods and you can't make us. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where they said, I'm pretty much committed To not honoring God and not obeying God. I don't care what you say and I don't care what you do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And by the way, who is this queen of heaven? Do you have any idea? Want to give it a guess? Go ahead, shout it out. Well, yeah, Ishtar, Ashtart. She was known by many different names. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of sexual love. She was the goddess of maternity. Andrew Blackwood writes, quote, the queen of heaven fills pages of history books. She doesn't live anymore in the hearts of people. And modern history in the making forces upon us the grim truth that the nations of the world must live by the principles Jeremiah taught her perish. Unquote. To the Hebrews, she was called Azura. To the Babylonians, Ishtar. To the Greeks, she was known as Aphrodite. To the Romans, Venus. On the internet, eHarmony.com. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just made a joke. It's not that at all. Cultic prostitution was frequently a part of her worship. Ezekiel reported that women in exile were worshiping Tammuz in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 14. And she was either the husband or the lover or the son of Ishtar. There was no conflict between the idolatry in Babylon and in Egypt. But here, here becomes the point. In other words, do you know what the Egyptians had in common with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans? Do you know what all of them had in common? A deep, deep devotion to fertility and sexuality and maternity. I mean, who doesn't care about all of that stuff? But here's the idea. 
the children of Israel fell into the trap of thinking that fertility and sexual love and maternity was going to be the answer to all of life's questions. And so how do we begin to penetrate and explore this level of self-deception and delusion? What were the reasons they themselves gave to continue down this road of delusion? They themselves said, well, we were better off when we worshiped these idols in verse 17. We had plenty of food. We were prosperous. We were free from harm and from war. Why we suffer hardship and deprivation when we ceased offering oblations and sacrifice to these gods there. And and they were almost certainly I'm going to suggest to you a reference to Josiah's prohibitions about idol worship. There was a there was a time in the history of Israel. There was just this incredible. Incredible revival that took place where Josiah came on the scene and he made it illegal to worship the false gods and goddesses. And so they made a law. Outlawing idolatry. But can you make a law saying it is now illegal to be an idolater and you still have idolatry inside of your heart? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, the answer is yes. Because even though Josiah made it, it was sort of the ancient Israeli version of prohibition. In our culture and society, there was a time when we outlawed alcohol. And by the way, when prohibition took place, did all of a sudden people go, well, you know, alcohol is against the law now. And guess what? I don't feel like drinking anymore. What did people do when we outlawed prohibition or we outlawed alcohol? They began to make it in the stills, out in the hills. They would find different ways. They would find medicinal reasons to continue to drink. They, there was all kinds of different things that you would, you would try to do. So for, for the most part, Josiah's reforms were legal and superficial. In what way? Again, Just because you make idolatry against the law, people still crave false gods. If you made marijuana illegal in Denver, would people go, I don't crave marijuana anymore? Yeah, the medical marijuana dispensaries would dry up, but what happens inside of the human heart when you have these cravings? And see, the people in Egypt, they had these cravings. Verse 18, but since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. In other words, they're making the excuse that, hey, when we were in wickedness and rebellion, everything was peaches and cream. Verse 19, the women also said, and when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? Here's what's happening. The women are forcing the issue. A husband at that time had the power to veto or annul a wife's vow. In other words, if if a woman said, hey, But I have made a vow to Azurah or Ashtar or Ishtar or to the queen of heaven. Hey, here's what I did. I promised Azurah that I would bake her a cake or I would light a candle or I would offer a sacrifice if I would get pregnant. And in the Hebrew culture, according to Numbers chapter 30, verse 8, if the husband said nothing, then it was okay for her to do it. In other words, part of what this passage is saying is, my husband knows exactly what I'm doing and he doesn't care. The women had demanded that the family continue to worship the idols with a special attention to the goddess of fertility. So what happens when you as a woman or you as a husband 
find yourself in a difficult circumstance, I want you to imagine your husband is deployed for war or what happens to women when their husbands are in constant battle and war and suffering and hardship, why the family suffers and how can you have family growth? How can you have livestock um, if people are always fighting? And so the women's hearts ache for peace and prosperity and abundance and blessing. But here is the idea. The women thought in order to have peace, in order to have prosperity, in order to have safety, in order to have blessing we're going to have to do it apart from the God of Israel and apart from the revelation of God and apart from the promises in the Bible you know we have to be practical here it just doesn't make sense to honor God in this kind of circumstance The women's hearts ached for peace and prosperity and blessing. But I need you to understand something. It's not wrong for you to want peace and it's not wrong for you to want to have prosperity. And it isn't wrong for you to want to have blessing. But see, what they did is they said peace, prosperity and blessing can only come if we reject the Lord who continues to point out our sin, who demands that we live a righteous life or face judgment. And they said, you know what? We've had enough of that judgment judgment stuff. We've had it with the judgment thing. We're done with the judgment thing. We're tired of the prophets constantly asking us to turn from our sin. We're tired of the prophets constantly asking us to obey God. We're we're tired of the prophets always prophesying judgment if we don't obey. And we're done. This is why the New Testament says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did? Stephen, when he was talking to the religious leaders, pointed out that when he tried to tell them the message of hope, that there is a real God and a real Jesus who loves you and who died for you and who's willing to forgive you if you'll just only accept him. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wrote, but in accordance with the hardness of your heart and the impenitent heart, you're treasuring for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, for those who don't obey the truth, For those who only obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the Bible teaches there's a basic human need that people have. And that's change, spiritual change. For the people who were in rebellion and disobedience against God, who felt so empty and so hurt and so lonely and so abused and so under constant torture, there was inside of their hearts this desperate desire for a change. And that makes sense to many of you because you understand what that's like. Matthew Henry wrote, to those whom God finds impenitent sinners, he will be found to be an implacable judge. The idea, you can change your hair, you can change your residence, you can change your job, you can change your partner, you can change your mind. There's all kinds of changes that you can implement in your life, but it won't change your heart. And so... The invitation is extended that in order to change your heart, there has to be a willingness to come to grips what's causing the hardness of the heart. It is the pride and the wickedness that fills our heart. The only thing that will bring about a lasting change is a change of heart. And the only thing that's going to bring about a change of heart 
is when people turn from their sin and they turn to the Savior. Can you imagine a world where you sin but you could never repent? Can you imagine a world where you can fall but God never lifts you up? The Bible promises that the sinner can be cleansed, that the fallen can be lifted up, that the prodigal can come home, that the enslaved can be free, that you can experience a lasting change of heart. There's one more sermon left in the in the chapter, but that's going to have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hard words, difficult words. We can so identify with so many conditions. So many of us have been in situations where we were afraid and we didn't feel safe. And we thought that the only way that we could be safe was when we trust our own devices or we trust the wisdom of men. Or we trust the philosophies of this world. Because for some wicked reason we thought that God and Christ and his promises weren't enough. Weren't sufficient. But Lord we know that the only thing that can really bring a change of heart is when we love you and we trust you. And we depend upon you. And so Lord again we pray. We understand that many people find themselves in a dark and lonely and empty place, running, running, running away from God, knowing that God will follow us even into that land of rebellion and disobedience and plead with us one more time to leave that place and go back to the place where we belong. In Jesus' name.